Well, praise the Lord. It is great to be together again in Colossians chapter 2, looking at withstanding in the last days. As we know, Paul wanted the church at Colossae to withstand the tidal wave of heresy that was coming against it. And what was coming against the church at Colossae is coming against us in these last days, as we know. So we've been looking at withstanding in the last days, and I believe we are certainly in the last days, and, and Satan is is coming with everything that he has against the church. And so we must absolutely do all that we can to stand and withstand what's coming against us. But we continue today looking at Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. We'll only be in that verse as it commands that type of attention and even more than we can give it right now. But let's go to the Lord in prayer and trust Him to meet with us and deal with us from Colossians 2, verse 8. Lord, thank you for just how wonderful this small epistle is. God, it is so very concentrated with doctrine and just invaluable wisdom and principles, Lord, that we would be so very wise to give great respect to. Would you please meet with us and teach us now Stir us now as only you can, in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we are in Colossians 2, verse 8, and here's what we read. Paul said, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Now, from this verse, there are two things believers and the Lord Jesus Christ are clearly warned to beware of. The first we discern by considering the first mention of the word beware in Scripture. In Genesis 24, Abraham sent his eldest servant, which would have been Eliezer, to secure a bride for his son Isaac, which we have referenced this account before. Abraham was very careful to instruct his servant that he was not to take a wife for his son Isaac of the Canaanites. In other words, this could not be a pagan or worldly woman. But here's what he goes on to say in Genesis 24 and verse 6 to his servant Eliezer. And Abraham said unto him, Beware, thou that thou bring not my son thither again. The servant was not to bring Isaac to Mesopotamia. God brought Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, which was an idolatrous or pagan place. So Abraham was insistent to Eliezer not to take Isaac there to the point where he actually mentioned it to him twice. If you continue reading in Genesis 24, you get to verse 8. Here's what Abraham said again. Only bring not my son thither again. So this is very important. In this first mention of beware, we see that it deals with the believer not returning to the world. That is very important. Now, with that in mind, consider what Paul said again in Colossians 2 verse 8. Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy. Now, this word philosophy, as we see it here, is the one and only mention in Scripture. You find the word philosophers mentioned in Acts 17, 18, 
and it referred to the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans were the group who deemed pleasure as the chief purpose in life, whereas the Stoics were pantheists. In other words, they believed and still believe that God and the universe are one and the same. So, from what we see in Acts 17.18, and from what Paul said in Colossians 2.8, that ought to tell us what God thinks of philosophers and philosophy. Okay? So, with that in mind, if we're going to withstand what is coming against us in these last days, we must first beware of worldly wisdom. We must first beware of worldly wisdom. Essentially, Paul issued the same warning as Abraham about returning to the world. Paul said, beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy. Philosophy is of man, it's not of God. It is of the world, it's not of the word. It is important for us to understand that and listen God would not have us to return to it. We are to beware of it. Because here's what it does. Philosophy, as Paul said, it spoils you. It spoils you, right? So what this does is this has in view that which is seized by violence and robbery. Understand, the goal of philosophy is destruction, not edification. That's the goal of philosophy. It seeks the destruction of man. It absolutely does because it's not of God. And as awful as that sounds, it does beg the question, if it's that terrible and if it's that malicious, then why is it so very effective? So here we go. Philosophy here in Colossians 2 verse 8, it simply means Jewish sophistry. Jewish sophistry. This is fallacious reasoning that is sound in appearance only. In other words, it looks very good and sounds very good until you filter it through Scripture. Sophistry is closely associated, as you probably glean, with the word sophisticate. And sophisticate means to adulterate. So that tells you what we're dealing with here and who's actually behind this. The philosophy of the Gnostics at Colossae, what it did was, and what it does to this day is, it adulterates the gospel, or it corrupts the gospel. And God's word, on the other hand, is unadulterated in its position regarding worldly wisdom. Consider what we read in James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. But if ye have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, glory not, and lie not against the truth. This wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly or worldly, sensual, devilish, for where envying and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. Now, it's interesting that one of the descriptives of worldly or earthly wisdom is that it's sensual. And it, it doesn't cease to amaze me when you study some of the philosophers um, that, that, that are still quoted today uh, that are held in so very high esteem by men and this world 
that placed and places a high premium on their philosophy and their worldly wisdom. A lot of those men were sexual perverts. They were very demented and vile in their thinking sexually. And one of the things the Bible tells you is that the wisdom of this world, it is sensual. But at a high level, James's point was, true wisdom is manifested in the spirit of meekness, not pride. Earthly wisdom, on the other hand, is sensual and devilish. That tells you where it comes from. For where envying and strife is, and it involves confusion and evil. So it becomes crystal clear who is the author of and who is behind earthly or worldly wisdom. And as much as I wish I could just write all this off as something that the world has to deal with and something that lost people are victimized by, I would be so very wrong. Because over the years, I've seen believers come to the place where they ditch the Bible and run to the world for their wisdom. And listen very carefully, especially when it comes to the home or the family. Because obviously, in the minds of too many believers, the world seems to know so much more about marriage and parenting than God does. And if some Christian couples were to be completely honest before God, they would have to admit that when it comes to training children and functioning in marriage, they find His instructions to be unreasonable and lacking, outdated, expired. There are Christians who will read the Bible on Sunday, hear the Bible taught to them in a place like this on Sunday, and then tomorrow morning, Monday morning, will open their internet or an internet browser to read their horoscope and believe it. And believe it. And take comfort in it and encouragement from it. Listen. The best of the world's wisdom does not have your best interests at heart as a believer. Never has, never does, never will. And we must understand that. We as believers can only trust the wisdom God gives us from His Word. We have to know that. You can't believe everything you read in the world, but you can believe everything you read in the Word. And that's very important. But back to Philippians 2 verse 8 now. Paul said, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. So, vain deceit simply means, or it refers to, empty delusion. An empty delusion is the misleading of the mind. That's vain deceit. That is its aim. That is its goal. It is to mislead your mind. No doubt about it. So, we must beware, we must also beware of man's misleadings. We must beware of worldly wisdom, and we must beware of man's misleadings. Vain deceit is vain because it does not provide absolute truth like the Word of God does. It does not provide assurance of eternal life, like the Word of God does. And it perverts and defiles God's Word. God's Word is holy. Every Word of God is pure. 
God's word is high. It's glorious. It's awesome. Man's misleadings, man's vain deceit are not. But this is not new, this corrupting of the word of God, this vain deceit. Consider what the Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 17. He said, For we are not as many which corrupt the word of God, but as of sincerity, but as of God, in the sight of God, speak we in Christ. So, whereas the gospel leads people to eternal life, vain deceit leads people to eternal death in hell, which will be cast into the lake of fire, Revelation 20. Now, Paul gave a very clear breakdown of vain deceit here in this verse, Colossians 2.8. He said that it is after the tradition of men. You should know this by now. We should know by now as believers that vain deceit is a staple within religion. Consider the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in Mark 7 and verse 9. He said, Full well ye reject the commandment of God, that ye may keep your own tradition. And this brings us to a very clear point about Gnosticism historically and currently. Gnosticism places a higher premium on what man thinks than what God says. So what man thinks is the final authority, not what God has said or what he says. It's been some years ago now, but I was dealing with an elderly man who was, he was a religious Gnostic. And I remember at one point in the conversation after we had been speaking for a while, I said to him, I said, I keep, I keep saying to you what the Bible says. I, I, keep, I keep referencing scripture. In return, you keep telling me what your church says and what you think. And I'm going to tell you, he replied this to me, and when he did, it absolutely froze me in my track. And, and I would even say a healthy fear came over me because of what I knew this meant for this man. He said this, he said, Kenny, I think on a higher level than the Bible. Wow. Again, this was not a young man, and unless he repented, he's probably in hell awaiting the great right throne judgment as we speak. Very sobering. Gnosticism is rooted in arrogance, pride, and self-righteousness. I read an article last week that talked about certain believers leaving their church because their church was not doing enough regarding issues of social injustice. And again, the article, it, it, it interviewed maybe four or five believers and they were given, you know, they were giving their position and what their expectations were and what they thought their church should have been doing and, and, and all of that. And obviously as I read that, I mean, one of the questions that came to my mind was, so let's just say that those churches did speak out more regarding social injustice. Let's say that they they maybe organized events and, and, and all of that. Let's say they did that. Well, okay. Well, then here in Kansas City, what about the homicide rate right now in 2020? 
Did you know that the homicide rate in 2020 has already surpassed the homicide rate of 2019 in Kansas City? I mean, people are being slaughtered in the streets of our city. People are being gunned down and murdered. So how much attention should we give to that? What about poverty? What about that? How much uh, attention should we should we devote to that? I mean, and, and we can go on and on with all the different social issues that are alive and well in our city and in our world. Here's where I'm going. The moment that we make those things the focal point of our teaching in this place, be not mistaken, we do open the door for vain deceit. We absolutely do. Because when you make those things the focus, you absolutely must set the gospel aside, and you must also set the word of God aside, and now replace those things, listen, with the thoughts, opinions, and politics of man. And that is how you open the door to vain deceit. And listen, historically, the church has never done well. As a matter of fact, I would even take it a step further. Historically, any church that took a political turn signed its spiritual death warrant. Absolutely did. Absolutely did. Understand, one of the reasons the religious leaders of Israel struggled greatly with the Lord Jesus Christ at his first coming was because in their prideful estimation, he was not political enough. They had political expectations that he did not immediately meet once he began his public ministry. And the greatest political expectation that they had was that he would overthrow the Roman government. They absolutely hated and despised being under Roman rule. And so his not doing so only added to their hatred and rejection of him. Please hear this, and I beg you to hear it loud and so very clearly. The only agenda in this place that is acceptable is the word of God, period. Line by line, every word of God, that is the only acceptable agenda here, not man's philosophies, opinions, and politics. Vain deceit is also after the rudiments of the world. Now, this word rudiments, it is also translated as principles in Hebrews 5.12. And of course, there, that's where Paul was reproving the Hebrew believers for needing to be taught again, listen, the first principles, rudiments, of the oracles of God. He also uses rudiments again here in Colossians 2 and verse 20, which we will get to. But Paul was saying, despite how impressive it looks and sounds, as far as the believer is concerned, vain deceit is nothing more than the ABCs of the world. That's all it is. In this, Paul was mocking the philosophical and religious systems of the Gnostics that claimed to be higher than the word of Christ. Paul said it was not after Christ. So understand this, whenever the believer says the word of God is not sufficient enough, it's not deep enough, it's not, 
intelligent enough or sophisticated enough or it's not equipped to handle the deeper and and more meaningful things of life. So now they're going to go to the world seeking a higher or greater wisdom. Paul says, you're actually going down. Paul says, you're actually going back to the rudiments of this world. You're going, all you're doing, all they can give you are the ABCs of life. That's it. And this brings us to a very critical point because one of the issues that plagued the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was looking back to Egypt when they got into the wilderness. Uh, consider what we read in Numbers 14 and verse 4. And they said one to another, Let us make a captain and let us return into Egypt. Here's where I'm going with this. And I, and I have... I have seen this enough, and I continue to see it where it prompts me to just share this with you. But as some believers get older, or as some of them go through some type of hard crisis in life, they begin to question if God's word is really sufficient and enough. Some of them will do the math on the fact that they have a lot more life and years behind them than ahead of them. The Bible does say that we should learn to number our days. Lord, teach us to number our days because they're short. So, some of them begin questioning if the Bible is sufficient when it comes to the more sophisticated and deep things of life, right? What if they've missed something? What if all these years of, of sitting in church and hearing the Word of God taught and, and, and reading devotionals, and re reading, having a quiet time and being in and around the Word, what if over all this time they have, they have overlooked or missed out on some nugget of wisdom, some deep truth that unlocks all the mysteries of life and fills in all the blanks and solves all the emotional aches and pains and even physical aches and pains, right? It's, what if something else is out there? Or maybe God allows some type of a hard left turn to happen in their life. Maybe their health fails or some type of a financial collapse or some type of significant loss of a loved one or something to that effect. And now, they are rethinking everything. And what I have seen, and what I see, is for some of those people, what they have done and what they do is, they start looking back at Egypt, and eventually, they start heading back to Egypt, and eventually get to Egypt looking for answers. And of course, when we're talking about Egypt today, we're talking about the world, which is what Egypt pictures. And sure enough, in that journey, in that pursuit, they come across some self-appointed guru on YouTube who seems to have all the answers to the issues of life that God doesn't seem to have. And if he does have them, he didn't give them to us in his word. To that, Paul would say, that's rudimentary.
Rudimentary is interesting. It sounds a lot like elementary, does it not? And they are so very close in meaning. Here's what we must understand as believers in Christ. We must understand that the world is always calling. The world, the world is always calling. The world is always saying, hey, come on back. Hey, come on back. We miss you. Hey, come on back. We, we've got something for you. Hey, come on back. We're new and improved. Come see what you've missed. Come see how we have improved. Come see how we have upgraded ourselves. What a disaster. What a disaster. We're not missing anything. As a matter of fact, it's interesting to me. You go back and you study the Exodus and, 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 and God's dealing with Pharaoh and God using Moses to, to, to get his people out of Egypt. And if you recall, at one point in that exchange, Pharaoh said something to this effect. He goes, okay, all right, I'll let you go, but just don't go too far. And that's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly Satan's heart. Okay, all right, I get it. You, you, you've gotten saved and, and, and you, you're seated in heavenly places and all that stuff. But you know what? Just don't go too far. I still want to be close enough to you where I can get to you. And, and, and that's Satan. That is the world. And if you are not growing in Christ where you are bringing your flesh into subjection to God's spirit and God's word, eventually you will answer the call and you'll return to Egypt. But the world is always calling. The world is always calling you as a believer in Christ every single day. In some form or fashion, it is calling you. And here's what we have to understand. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are either getting closer to Christ or we're getting closer to the world. That is happening in your life right now. There is no in-between. You're either getting closer to the world or you're getting closer to Christ. That is happening every single day in the life of a believer. One of those. And some might be thinking that, well, no, I think you're exaggerating a bit. I think not. Would you consider what we read in 1 Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 1? And Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about. Now, I promise you, at the time, Solomon would have viewed this, and if you would have spoken to him about it, and you would talk to him about Egypt and it being a type of the world and all the reasons why this was not a wise decision, he would have said, oh, it's, it's a political decision, and it's in the best interest of politics and all these different reasons as to why I need to marry this woman. But understand, the seed at that moment was planted for Solomon's return to the world and and oh how did it germinate it germinated incredibly because when you fast forward from first kings 3 1 and you find yourself in first kings 11 particularly in verse 4 for now it says for it came to pass when solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods 
and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. One of the things that we see very clearly from 1 Kings chapter 11 as it opens is that Solomon loved many strange women. The seed had been planted. And, if, and from 1 Kings chapter 3 to 1 Kings chapter 11, you can see Solomon was, was, was making his return. The, the, the ground was set, the path was set for him to return back to the world. Consider Second Chronicles 16 and verse 7. And at that time, Hanani, the seer, came to Asa, king of Judah, and said unto him, Because thou hast relied on the king of Syria, and not relied on the Lord thy God, therefore is the host of the king of Syria escaped out of thine hand. Now, God had done nothing but prove himself and show himself to Asa as being the God who could be relied on. But when Asa found himself in a jam, he decided that, you know what? I can't rely on God for some reason, but I can rely on the world. So I'm going to return to the world and get the help that I can really only find and get in God. And look at how this ends, Second Chronicles 16, 12. And Asa, in the thirty and ninth year of his reign, was diseased in his feet, until his disease was exceeding great. Yet in his disease he sought not, the, not to the Lord, but to the physicians. The issue was not that Asa sought the physicians. That wasn't the issue. It was that he stopped seeking God. It was that he stopped relying on God and started relying on the world. How foolish of us to believe that we can rely on this world. How foolish of us to believe that we can trust the world's wisdom. How foolish of us to believe that man's philosophy is somehow grandier and greater than God's word. Now, I have not been a pastor for five minutes. I know some might think I have. But in a class of our size, by no means am I mistaken. Because I know that some who call life fellowship home are on their way back to Egypt as we speak. They're struggling with whatever is going on or has gone on in life and they have just deemed that God's word is just not doing it for them. It's not meeting them where they're at. It's not supplying them with what they think they need. And so certainly, they conclude that this world has something to offer them that God can't. You know, we had Gary Staub's funeral here last Saturday, and I'm blessed to have known Gary, and I had a very meaningful experience with him some years ago now. Um, I had been saved for, at the time, somewhere between a year and a half and two years. It was somewhere in that in that range, and under Gary's leadership, I took my first discipleship trip to Jacksonville, Florida. There was a church there that was looking to implement discipleship in their church, and as we did so many times back then at KCBT, we would go to churches and present a biblical philosophy of discipleship and trust God to use that for them to implement that into their church, and 
And so it was so great to to spend a month before we left with with Gary and how he prepared us for that trip. And I will tell you, the prep was very deliberate. It was very diligent. Uh, he was very serious about making sure everyone on that team was prepared to teach and teach well in terms of whatever responsibility that they had. And so uh, he actually had me teach uh, in one of the evening sessions, and, and I, I thought maybe he was, you know, I thought, well, maybe I'll be in a little small group or something, and I can share a testimony about what discipleship meant to me. I had no idea that he was going to throw me in front of a, a decent-sized group and have me teach for 30 minutes or so. And I, wow, does this guy know what he's doing? <laughs> but I praise the Lord because God used that trip greatly in my life, and there were things that happened on that trip that were just... It, it was just it was just God moving, <laughs> and um, so I'm thankful. Gary was a faithful man who loved the Word of God, had a passion for discipleship. He passed on Friday, October the ninth. Guess what Gary Staub did on Sunday, October the fourth, on hospice. So he died October the ninth, Friday. On Sunday, October the 4th, days before he would take his last breath on hospice, he preached his last message to his congregation. In his older years, Gary Staub grew closer to Christ, not the world. And in, in, all, in all the years that I knew Gary or knew of him, that was always his testimony. Gary never went back to the world, was not looking back to the world. He was totally convinced that God's word was more than enough. And oh God, let that be my testimony and yours. This world has nothing to offer you, and it has nothing to offer me. We don't need its wisdom, and we most certainly don't need its vain deceit. So the world can keep its philosophy, and it can keep its vain deceit. We'll take the perfect, holy, magnificent, pure, powerful Word of God. It is all that we need. Father, we want to thank you for your word. That is only true. That is only right. God, may we give ourselves to it completely for the rest of our days. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.